Thank you so much, uh, Jeff, for reading. This one working okay? Excellent. I'm going to put this one on the ground. It's off. Wonderful. Uh, it is hard to know the, the tone, but thank you so much for reading for us. It's such an important passage. Let me add my welcome uh, to Lachlan's. Uh, my name is Wal. I'm the Senior Minister here at Narrenburn Camaray Anglican Church. And uh, it's great to be with you, especially as we come towards these final few chapters of the book of Job that we've been reading through this term together. We've got a couple of weeks in these chapters because they are so important, both for Job and for us. Uh, I still remember the first time I really became aware of these chapters. Uh, I was at uni. I'd been a Christian perhaps for maybe four or five years, something like that. And uh, there was an older Christian brother at church who sat down with me and read through uh, chapter 38 to 41. Uh, perhaps he detected something in me that needed a little bit of humbling. I'm not sure. Uh, but I do clearly remember that that was the effect that these chapters had on me. Uh, just making me uh, realise, really in quite an overwhelming way, that God is so much, much bigger uh, than I usually give credit for. And I am so much smaller and so much more limited in my understanding and knowledge than I normally am willing to admit. And I don't think I probably understood anything at the time about how these chapters fit into the story of Job. I just remember thinking that they were wonderful and they were profound and they were instructive, and they were good for my soul. And one person has written about these chapters. Uh, if you read these chapters every day for a month, you will find that they are a treatment for almost anything. Do you fear people? Are you suffering? Are you anxious? Depressed? Struggling with anger? hard-hearted. Listen to these questions from the mouth of God. And so friends, whether this is your first time with these chapters or your 20th, I hope this is our experience together this morning as we listen to God speak. Just to put things in context, because we've kind of skipped through a couple of scenes to get to this point. Last week, we heard that wonderful ode to, to wisdom and to understanding in Job chapter 28. Uh, in chapters 29 to 31, we get Job's last major speech. There's a couple of changes, but basically, he repeats some of the ideas from earlier on in the book that he's been wrestling with. And then uh, in chapters 32 to 37, we hear four speeches by a man named Elihu, and one of the things Elihu does is he paints a very compelling picture of God in all of his majesty and all of his might. And this seems to prepare Job for what happens in chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. It's the first time in a long time that we've heard Job speak in this book. In fact, the last time we heard... Oh, sorry, that we've heard God speak in this book. The last time we heard God speak was back in chapter 2 when he spoke about Job to Satan in the heavenly council chambers. And so what that means is it's been a long time now that Job has been left in the dark by God about his circumstances, about his suffering. It's a long time that Job has been left to lament and to groan and to bewail his many hardships. It's a long time that Job has been left to try and defend himself against his three accusers, his three friends who keep telling him that he must have done something wrong and God is simply 
punishing him. It's been a long time that Job has been left longing for vindication before God, for a chance to speak with God directly and plead his case. And now at last, it seems as if the desire of Job's heart is granted to him and God speaks to him directly, although it is perhaps just a little bit ominous that God speaks to him from a storm. An implicit little reminder, perhaps, even before the speech gets going, that if God really is God, then he is certainly God and not a mere mortal like Job. His power and might are beyond our comprehension. He is utterly untamed. He speaks from the storm. Now, verse 2, he asks the question, Who is this that obscures my plans, that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. One of the big news stories this week has been uh, tennis player Naomi Osaka uh, not wanting to answer questions in a post-match media conference. And there's lots of views about the rights and wrongs of all that. But friends, when the one who wants to question us is God himself, there is no wiggle room to get out of that. And in a way that only God can, he demands that we answer him. Now, of course, Job himself, he's had many questions to ask of God. And God, for his part, has allowed Job a great deal of latitude, a great deal of wiggle room for such kind of questioning with faith, if I can put it like that. Not least of all, I take it, because Job himself is the innocent sufferer in all this. But at times, Job has come perilously close to charging God with evil. And I think that's what it means when it says that he has darkened God's counsel and obscured God's plans with words without knowledge. Without a full understanding of things, Job has called into question God's wisdom and goodness in the way that he runs the world and in particular in the way that he has treated Job. And in a world that is ruled by God, such questions cannot simply be left hanging unanswered. And so God now has some questions for Job. And it might seem like a really obvious thing to say, but God's questions for Job are far more important than Job's questions for God. In fact, they are absolutely vital to Job's perseverance in faith. Just as they are vital to our perseverance in faith as well. Whenever we go through times of suffering and we want to ask God about what he is doing, see, God longs for us to trust him. He longs that we would persevere in trusting him. And so he takes time to teach us that he is always absolutely worthy of our trust. And so these questions for Job are not only for Job, they are also for us. Now, in chapter 38, uh, the focus, you know, generally, if we try to summarise, is really on the inanimate parts of creation. So verse 4, uh, God asks the question, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? 
On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. The image here is of a building site uh, right at the beginning of the process of the building being built. The kind of thing we did out the back here just a couple of years ago. The, the measurements all carefully marked out. The foundations very carefully prepared. And, of course, it's this understanding of the world as well-ordered and precisely arranged that is the foundation of modern science. But God says to Job, well, Job, I was the one who did all that. Where were you when it happened? I mean, if you were there, tell me what you remember. Who held the measuring tape in their hand? Who prepared the foundations? I mean, can you remember the song that the stars were singing when they saw all that I had done, Job? Tell me what the song was. It goes on, verse 8. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, and I said, this far you may come, but no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Now we've moved from the building site to the birthing suite. And the newborn baby that is received into the arms of the midwife and wrapped in swaddling cloths. And God says to Job, who was midwife to the sea? I'm the one who set its limits. I put up the bars and the doors and I said to it, this is how far you can go. Not one centimetre more. Verse 12, you ever given orders to the morning, Job? You ever shown the dawn its place? That I might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. One of the things that happens in this little set of verses is... That what goes on in the physical world is now connected to what goes on in the moral world. Um, in other words, the reason the sun comes up every morning is so that its light might shake the wicked out of the earth, that they might be denied their light, which is really the darkness, that their upright arm may be broken. Well, you see, once we notice that connection going on in these verses, maybe in hindsight we look back and we remember that very often in the Old Testament, the waters of the sea, which we've just heard about in verses 8 to 11, they are so often associated with kind of chaos and disorder and danger and evil and ultimately death. And all of a sudden, we may begin to realise that God's good ordering of the physical world and his good ordering of the moral world, they are not two different things. They are all of one piece. And actually, we've seen this before in the book of Job, haven't we? Do you remember Job's words back in chapter 9 when he accused God of this? He shakes the earth from its place. He makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. And of course, it wasn't really about sun and the stars that Job was concerned. 
But by accusing God of disordering the physical world, he was really accusing God of disordering the moral world as well, especially in his treatment of Job. And God says no to all that. And he lets Job know just how little he understands about how this world is ordered, whether physically or morally. After all, it was not Job, but he who laid the earth's foundations, who set its pillars in place, who put limits on the sea, who calls forth the sun every morning. In the same way, it is not Job, but he who establishes and maintains the moral order of this world, even restraining wickedness and evil. And so we can say that, yes, wickedness and evil do exist in the created order, but they have a strict limit that is imposed upon them by God. Just as back in Job chapter 1 and 2, Satan himself had limits imposed upon him by God. He didn't have a free reign to strike Job as he wanted. Always he was held back by God. Now, of course, Job himself doesn't know anything about that conversation. He's got no idea how God and Satan spoke in the heavenly council chamber. He doesn't know how God has been restraining Satan's power. But you see, that is the very point that God is now trying to teach Job, for not just in his own circumstance, but, but in every aspect of creation, there are many, many things that Job does not understand about how God restrains wickedness and evil and sovereignly orders the world for good. And friends, isn't the same thing true of us? But just because we don't understand what God does. We mustn't for one moment think that God has abandoned his post and ceased to be in full control of everything that goes on in this world. He has not. And he will not. Well, the chapter goes on and God asks many more questions in order to help Job and us confront the fact that although there might be many things we can say about how the world works and we can observe natural phenomena and we can discover complex chains of cause and effect and we get David Attenborough to present them all to us in amazing documentaries, even so, the things we can't explain will always be far greater than the things we can. And... Our oceans of ignorance will always far outpace the tiny droplets of our understanding. God alone has the power and the wisdom, the eternal nature and the understanding to govern the world and to restrain wickedness and evil. And as we come into chapter nine, uh, chapter 39, though, the, the focus of the questions changes. And again, kind of we're summarising here. Broadly, the, the focus of the questions changes from the inanimate to the animate parts of creation. So within just chapter 39, you get at least six animals are kind of considered at some length. From verse 1, there's a mountain goat giving birth to its young. From verse 5, there's the wild donkey living out in the wasteland all by himself. 
verse 9, there's the wild ox with all his strength. In verse 13, there's the, the kind of absurdity of the ostrich. Uh, verse 19, there's a mighty war horse. And then verse 26, there's the birds of prey, the, the hawk and the eagle. I find it hard to spot exactly what ties all these animals together. Um, some of them, you kind of think the mountain goat, the, the wild donkey, the ox. Um, some of them seem to have been chosen because they are wild. They, they're undomesticated. They're untamed. They're not the kind of animals you'd find on the farm, perhaps. They're out in the bush. They're out in the wild. I'm not totally sure that works for the war horse, though, uh, given that it kind of does charge into battle at the sound of the trumpet and the yell of the commander. Uh, other animals seem to have been chosen because they're dangerous and they're hostile. The war horse, the birds of prey, the ox. I don't think that really works for the ostrich. Uh, the description of the ostrich is probably the strangest of the lot. It's almost comical in tone. Verse 17, God didn't endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Imagine a bird with feathers that can't fly. I mean, it's just laughable. Uh, my own view of things, and you'll need to you know, think whether you think this works, is that whether dangerous and hostile, like the ox and the war horse, or wild and untamed, like the, the donkey and the goat, or simply kind of strange, like the, the ostrich. There is here just a whole world of animals that are completely independent to the world of humans. Uh, we have as little to do with the survival of these animals as we do the stars in the sky. But not so God. Uh, even these animals, too, are part of his world and permanently under his sovereign rule. And in the context of this book, we must say the same with regard to suffering and evil. Perhaps at times we can detect a recognisable purpose in our suffering. At other times, though, it may be as enigmatic to us as the ostrich or as untamed as the donkey, or as hostile as the war horse. And yet, nevertheless, it has its part in God's order for the world. And it remains permanently under God's rule. I wonder as well, though, if there's another argument that's being made for us in this chapter kind of implicitly, because one of the things I think is quite striking when you compare the questions of chapter 38 with the questions of chapter 39, and I wish I had a better way to describe this, but it, it seems to me to kind of set up a comparison for us, not just between inanimate and animate things, but between big things and small things, between significant things and insignificant things, between essential things and peripheral things. Um, after all, what could be more significant or essential than the foundations of the earth which God has laid or the limits of the sea being carefully set or, or the very laws of the heavens? I mean, what could be more essential than all of that? Chapter 38. What could be more fundamental to the order of life than the sun coming up every morning? Chapter 38. On the flip side, however, chapter 39, what could be 
more insignificant, more peripheral than the donkey out on the wasteland all by itself, hunting on the hills for some grass to eat. It doesn't even hear the commotion of the town. It's, it's so removed from, from the world of people. What could be more trivial than the silly old ostrich? A feathered bird that can't fly and it lays its eggs but it then seems to disregard them completely and take no care of them and yet when it runs even the horse can't keep up. I mean, what a crazy creature. But interesting, sure. Quizzical? Absolutely. But essential? Significant? fundamental to the way God works in the world? Doesn't feel like it. Do you see the kind of thing I'm getting at with chapter 39? You compare it to chapter 38. And, and here's why I think it could be significant. Because sometimes in our modern scientific world, even without necessarily meaning to, we, we can end up uh, really having a, a vision of God, which is a God of the gaps, in other words, a God who is the final explanation, if you like, for all of the gaps in our knowledge that still exist about how the world works. And those are usually the big things, aren't they? They're the big ticket items that we still can't explain. We say, well, God does that. The chapter 38 kind of things. But actually, the Bible very often argues in the opposite way entirely. Now, do you remember when Jesus says that even the hairs on our head are known to God? And I understand that for some of the men here, that might be less of a feat than for others of us. But still, can you think of something that is more trivial for God to know? But he knows. Think of Jesus drawing his disciples' attention to the way God clothes the flowers of the field. Or to the fact that not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of his heavenly Father. Are not we worth much more to God than sparrows? Are we not more precious to him than flowers in the field? Of course we are. And is Job not worth much more to God than the lonely donkey out in the wasteland? Or the reclusive eagle high on the cliff? Than the snorting warhorse? Or the comical ostrich? Of course he is just as we are as well. But friends, if God's rule extends not just to the big things of Job chapter 38, but also to the peripheral things of Job chapter 39, and then we remember that God does not regard us as peripheral or insignificant in any way, then we can certainly trust that he keeps us under his wing as well, even as we suffer even as we suffer without being able to discern a reason for it. Even as we suffer, and the thing we long more than anything is to have an audience with God ourselves so we could talk it through. Even then, God is always absolutely worthy of our trust. 
Well, there's still more that God wants to ask Job, and we'll come to that next week. Uh, But at the start of chapter 40, as Jeff alerted us to, God pauses for a moment and, and he asks Job for an answer. And Job is wisely brief in how he responds. In light of what God has said, he recognises that he has indeed been speaking about God using words without knowledge. And therefore, he will now be silent. And even with all of his questions still not directly answered, he will entrust himself again to the care of his sovereign Lord. And friends, as we have heard God's questions to Job, I hope we will share something of Job's humble response. That having been reminded of God's sovereign rule of all things, we would trust that it is more wide-ranging and more intricate than we could ever imagine. Because, of course, as we read these words from our vantage point, on our side of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who exercised the very same dominion over creation that we've heard about today, you remember the day he stood in the back of the boat and he commanded the wind and the waves? And they obeyed him. Remember another day there was an angel sitting on a stone. He said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. The Lord Jesus exercises the very same dominion even over death itself and sin that we have heard about today. And so friends, if we have come to know this Lord Jesus, do we have not have much more reason even than Job to trust God's care of us? even in suffering. For he who did not spare his only son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us everything we need? Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these questions that you addressed to Job. Uh, We thank you that they were handpicked to grow his knowledge of your greatness and your grandeur and your sovereign control of all things. And so we pray that you would do the same for us, that we would come to trust that you are in control of everything and you are worthy of all our confidence. So help us to be confident in you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.